If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter number one, our primary verse today will be from, from that <clears throat> passage, but I want to talk to you this morning about the importance of vision. Now, we all know that in our physical lives, vision is very important. It helps us to see our surroundings. It helps us to see where we're going. And uh, vision is extremely, extremely important. If you've ever had an eye problem, you know how important vision is. I know about eight years ago, I noticed that my vision began to change. The print in all the books I was reading started shrinking, getting smaller. And uh, I thought, what's wrong with my books? Well, it wasn't the books. It was my eyes. They had changed. And as we get older, our vision just changes. But one of the things I love about God is that his vision for us never, ever changes. In fact, as I was thinking about when we talk about God's vision for our life, that is, what does God, when he looks at your life, what does he see? What does he want you to become? Well, I think the first thing we would, we would say is God wants us to be saved. We know that it is not God's will for anybody to be unsaved or to perish, but that we should all have a personal relationship with him. Secondly, it is God's will, God's vision for your life and for mine that we would become progressively more like Jesus. Christ's likeness is God's goal and God's vision for our life. And then it's God's vision, God's plan, God's will, whatever word you want to use for your life and for mine, that we would share with others the message of salvation that we have found in Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, these are very familiar words to most of us. Jesus spoke these words just before he returned to heaven, and he was talking to his disciples and giving them some last-minute instructions before he left. And he says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, that word in our English Bible, power, comes from the Greek word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that. Jesus was saying, not too many days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to come down from heaven, and he's going to indwell you, and he's going to fill you. And once you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a power in your life like you have never known before. And as you have that power, what I want you to do, beginning in Jerusalem and then in the surrounding areas, I want you to be my witnesses. Now, what is a witness? In a, in a courtroom setting, what does a witness do? Well, a witness doesn't argue a case or try to prove a point. That's what the attorneys do. But the witness is there for one reason, to tell what he or she has seen. What did you see? What did you hear? What have you experienced? And so when Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses, here's what he was saying. You don't have to know a lot of theology. You don't have to have dozens of Bible verses memorized. You don't have to have any of that. But what you have to do is to share with others the difference that I have made in your life. Simply tell what you have experienced. You shall be my witnesses. Now, several months ago in one of our sermons, we were studying, and we need to come back and finish that maybe sometime this summer, but we were studying some of the great verses in Proverbs. And we came across a verse in the 29th chapter that simply says this, where there's no vision, the people perish. Let's say that together. Where there's no vision, the people perish. So in other words, 
as you think about your life, if you don't have a financial vision, if you don't have a work vision, if you don't have a health vision, how much you want to weigh, how strong you want to be, if you don't have some kind of a vision, you're going to perish. In, your, in other words, you're not going to flourish. You're not going to grow. And so we all need to have a vision in our life. And that's true for churches. Churches need visions. And visions come from God. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And in that particular sermon, I shared how one day I was home thinking about our church, praying about our church, and I was kind of talking to God about a vision for our church. And as I was doing that, I just felt like God impressed on my heart that the vision for our church would be to reach 10% of our community for Jesus Christ. Now, within about a five-mile radius of our church here today, I'm talking about Pasadena, LaPorte, Deer Park, going down towards Clear Lake, just within a five, and I know a lot of people drive more than five miles, but within a five-mile radius of our church, there are approximately 150,000 people. And so 10% of that would be 15,000 people. And I shared this on a Sunday. Now, Dad and I talked about it. I talked about it with the staff. I shared it with the church, and everybody seemed good with that, that That would be a great vision and a great thing to see that many people get saved and to see the church grow like that. I think one of the reasons that vision came to my mind is the town where I grew up, a small town in East Texas, had about 15,000 people living there. And in our church, which was a smaller church than our church here, but it was, you know, had a lot of people from the community. We had about 1,500 people who were in church there every Sunday. And I just saw growing up as a high school student, now the difference in my growing up and you guys, like the town I grew up in, there was one high school. Now here there are a lot of high schools. Our church has a school, I mean, so there are a lot of schools around here. But I saw in my growing up years the difference that a church can make in a community when you have 10% of the community in your church. We used to go to youth camp in the summer. Our head football coach went. Many of the guys I played ball with went. A lot of them didn't have a church home. They got saved. They came into our church. It was a beautiful thing. And so I thought that would be a beautiful thing here. Now, we're in a larger area. We're a larger church. But that would be about 15,000 people coming to church on the weekend. So I've already shared that. I'm just revisiting that today. Now, as I have thought about that and processed that and prayed that over and thought that through, There are some things that are very important today that I want to share, and then we're going to come back. I'll probably deal with this again next Sunday in a different way, and then in the fall, we're going to have a five-week emphasis where we talk about the church and reaching our community and growing, and we're trying to get people connected in connection groups, and so we're going to have a five-week emphasis in the fall to do that, but for our purposes today, I want to circle back around to this vision and talk about, you know, how great it would be if there were 15,000 people here. You know, on a normal Sunday, there would probably be around 1,800 people here currently at First Baptist. On Easter Sunday, we had over 3,000. So we were, you know, getting close. We were one-fifth there on Easter Sunday of what it could be with God's blessing. But the reason I want to bring this up today, and I think everybody who's been around for a long time, we all kind of know each other's heart and where we're coming from, but also know we have a lot of visitors. As you know, God has blessed First Baptist. I failed to say this in the first service, but in the last two years since COVID started, 
And these, for all the churches since COVID started in, in, in March of 2020, you know, and then churches were shut down, to the glory of God in the last two years, we've had almost 600 people join our church in the last two years. That's a praise God for that. So a lot of the, I mean, these people might not know all of our hearts or might not know my heart. And so I want to talk about numbers for a second, because I think any time that a pastor starts talking too much about numbers, or a preacher does, I think it can be a dangerous thing. I think it can be a prideful thing. I think it can get our focus off the Lord and on to numbers. And that, that's not my heart, and that's not what uh, God would want our church to be. So I want to put this on the screen today. This is a good way to start this, this sermon. Success isn't measured by numbers. Success is measured by being obedient to God. Success is not measured by numbers. I, I think of a man in the Old Testament named Isaiah, prophet of God. God called Isaiah to preach. And he told Isaiah before he started preaching, he said, Isaiah, when you go out there to preach, here's what you need to understand. The, peop the people that you'll be preaching to have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. They can't see spiritually. They have hearts, but their hearts are hard. And so they're not going to receive your message. They're going to be callous. They're going to be indifferent. And as far as we know, Isaiah didn't really have any converts his entire ministry. And so if success was measured by numbers, when Isaiah died, God would have said, well, Isaiah, you're a failure. You didn't, you didn't lead anybody to me. Nobody got saved. You didn't have a very big following there. But when Isaiah died, he died a success. Not because he had a big church. He died a success because he had been faithful to God. Now, you can apply that to your Sunday school class, to your connection group. Success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by being obedient to God. The fact is, none of us can control the numbers anyway. You know, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 where Paul is talking about what I'm talking about. He's talking about sharing his faith and being a witness and trying to help other people get saved. And Paul had lived a long time as a Christian by the time he wrote this, and he said, I've noticed something. He said, I've noticed that I can plant the seed. I can share Christ with someone. I can preach the gospel. I can come along after that and water, the, or, or Apollos, a friend of his, Apollos can water the seed and try to help other people understand, but only God can make the garden grow. And so I'm saying that today to say that, and, and nobody has said anything to me about this except positive, so I'm not, I mean, everything's good here, but I'm just saying I want it to come from my lips that while we have a vision and a goal to reach 10% of our community for Christ, our success in the eyes of God will in no way be measured by whether or not we reach that goal. Our success will be measured as to where we're, whether we're faithful to do what Jesus said, to be a witness, to share with others what Jesus Christ has meant for us. One of my favorite pastors, Charles Stanley, has a statement that has been a blessing to my life for years, and it really fits into what I'm talking about here. He says this, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. He said that has been the principle that has undergirded his life and his ministry, that all we can do in life is be obedient to God, and we have to trust the consequences, or we have to leave the consequences in God's hands. Now, if our vision is to reach 10%, now we'd like to reach 100%, and maybe God will let that happen, but for now, if our vision is to reach 10% of our community for Christ, we need some kind of a mission statement. 
some kind of a, of a statement that would keep us on track and keep us moving in the right direction. This past week, I came across several statements of corporations that we're all familiar with, large corporations here in America, and I was reading about their mission statement, and interestingly, that's what they call it. They call it a mission statement. Walmart, for example, says this, we save people money so they can live better. And especially today with prices and uh, that everything is costing, that's a great, that's a great mission statement. Coca-Cola's mission statement, to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. And you see those Coca-Cola commercials on TV, that's what they're trying to do. Pepsi, if you prefer Pepsi over Coke, here's their mission statement, to provide consumers around the world with delicious, affordable, convenient, and complimentary foods and beverages, from wholesome breakfast to healthy and fun daytime snacks and beverages to evening treats. And so that statement keeps Pepsi uh, on, on target. McDonald's, our mission is to make delicious, feel-good moments easy for everyone. Now, I'm starting to get hungry reading these mission statements in these different places. But that's what they're trying to do, to make delicious, feel-good moments. And McDonald's, they have good food, and you do kind of feel good in that. And they're trying to make that available for everyone. Now, when I was reading all these mission statements, I started thinking about my own life. Forget the church. Forget the church. I started thinking about me, and I thought, well, I don't really have a... I don't know that I've ever written out a mission statement like, what, what is it that I hope to accomplish in my life? What, what is it that I'm trying to do? And so I, I started thinking about that, and I thought, now, God, I need a mission statement. So we have it on the screen today, and I'm not saying it's fantastic, but it made me think, and I would encourage you sometime this week to get alone, turn the TV off, get a piece of paper, a notebook, and a pen, and just think and write out what it is you would like to accomplish in life. Here's mine, to live in unbroken fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't always do that. Sometimes I sin or have a bad attitude, but this is nonetheless my goal, to live in unbroken fellowship with Jesus Christ, to represent Him well in every situation. I don't always do that, but it's nonetheless my goal, and to share His message of salvation with as many people as possible. Now, I thought about that for quite a while the other night, and I'm real comfortable with that. I, I, I would be pleased when I come to the end of my journey, not perfectly because we're not going to do anything perfectly, but for the whole, for the most part, if, if I could say, you know, by the help of God, I was able to do that. And so then we've been thinking as a staff for a for month, probably for over a year, what would be a good mission statement for our church? Now, remember, the vision, the goal, the prayer, the, the desire is to reach 10% of our community and then to go from there. But what would be a good mission statement for our church? We want it to be concise, succinct, and yet thorough. And so here's what we came up with, and I hope that you'll like it. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. How do you like that? You like that pretty good? I mean, we've been working on it. Your excitement, I can hardly stand it. You're just getting so excited. But we've been working on this for a long time. So look at this. To help all people. That, now think about this. All people includes all people. It includes people who are like us, people who are different than us, people who look at issues like we look at issues, people who might look at issues differently than how we look at issues. It includes Democrats, it includes Republicans, it includes white people, it includes black people, it includes Asian people, Hispanic, it doesn't matter. To, to, our, mission, our mission statement is to help all people experience new life 
in Jesus Christ. I mean, hey, everybody wants something new, a new house, a new car, a new job, a new relationship. There's something we think, well, if I could just have something new. Friend, listen to me today. The only thing in life that will never get old is Jesus Christ. Everything else gets old, and it's not new anymore. And when the new wears off, the excitement sometimes is gone. And so I think that is a good mission statement. Now, is it still up there? No, they just took it down. Well, let's put it back up there if, if you can. And I want us to say that together. Ready? Let's try it. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. The way I would try to memorize that is, I, in my mind, I would break it down into three little phrases. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. The only new life that there is is in Jesus Christ. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Let's say that together. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. Let's do it again. To help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. In the first service when it was all over, I was sending them out the door. I said, let's say the mission statement. And I said, it, I did a solo. Nobody could remember it. So I'm, trying, I'm working harder on this one. Let's try to do it by yourself in three phrases. Ready? I thought you guys were doing well. It's on the screen. Take that off the screen. I thought this sermon is really getting in, and y'all are just reading that off the screen. I thought, man, I'm a great teacher. Y'all are good readers. That's all that is. Come on. I'm up here with my little three phrases. Y'all just reading it right off the screen. So by yourself, here we go. Now that's it. Now here's the question. That's our mission today. That's why we're here. That's really the only reason we're here. If you're visiting today and you think, now I've come to church, what do these people want? I'll tell you what we want. We want to help you experience new life in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's really the purpose and the mission of our church. Now, here's the question. How in the world are we going to fulfill that mission statement? <laughs> these 150,000 people in a radius of our church, and, and by the way, if you added up the church attendance from all the churches in this radius, I mean, I've never done that. There's so many churches, so many great churches, different denominations. But I think it's probably safe to say, conservatively speaking, of the 150,000, 130 to 135 to maybe 140,000 of the 150,000 don't go to church, at least not on a weekly basis. Because if you added all the attendance from all the churches up, I think that would validate what I just said. So the question is, how do we fulfill that mission statement? Well, here's how by fulfilling our three purposes. And we introduced our purposes uh, last fall. And I, I said when I did that, that our church is blessed to have a rich history. And ever since my dad became the pastor here in 1990, one of the things that I started doing early on was learning about, educating myself about the history of our church, pastors who had been here before he became pastor, staff members who had been here, and, and through the other ministers. I mean, and we've become great friends with a lot of those people through the years. Our church is blessed with a rich history. Back in the 1970s, Brother Darrell Robinson pastored this church, and he had, when he was a the pastor, they had the three purposes. And here's how Brother Darrell said it. He said, our purposes are to exalt the Savior, to equip the saints for the works of ministry, and to evangelize the sinner. And, and I like that. It's alliterated. It's easy to remember. Exalt the Savior, equip the saints, evangelize the sinner. Well, we started talking, my dad and I, how can we maybe take those three truths? The purposes of the church haven't changed. How could we maybe update the vocabulary of that just a little bit so if people don't know what evangelize means or equip means or even exalt, we could say that in a little easier way for 2022. And so we came up with this, lift up Jesus, 
build up believers, reach out to others. Now let's say that. I know you're reading it, so it's going to be good, but let's say that together. Lift up Jesus, build up believers, reach out to others. Those are our purposes. That is how we fulfill the mission statement of helping all people to experience new life in Jesus Christ. First, by lifting up Jesus. My dad quoted it in his welcome time that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. How do we lift up Jesus? In the praises of God's people. When we come to church on Sunday and we're singing these beautiful songs about Jesus, majesty, the songs that that we're singing in here about just lifting up Jesus, even in the singing of the songs, Jesus is being lifted up. And when he is being lifted up, his Holy Spirit is drawing unsaved people. Think about this. If somebody here today is unsaved, and they're sitting near or next to you, you are saved. And you're singing these songs to the Lord about how good he's been to you and he made a way where there seemed to be no way and and how much you love him and how much he's changed your life. You're lifting up Jesus in song. The Holy Spirit uses your worship to do what? To convict them of their need for who you have in Jesus. And so even the worship itself is extremely important. And then in the proclamation of God's word. You know, that's why this table, this pulpit right here is in the center of the room because the preaching of God's word is central. It is the most important thing that happens in the room. The preacher is not the most important person in the room. We're all equally important, but the preaching of God's word, the proclamation of God's word, hearing from God is the most important thing that happens in this room. So that's how we lift up Jesus. And then build up believers. What is this all about? Helping us to grow in our faith. When you were saved, according to Jesus, you were born again. And the Bible says you were like a newborn baby. And as a baby, just like a a baby in, in life, but a spiritual baby has to grow. And we grow on the milk of God's word. We grow by obeying the Lord. We grow by learning to trust him when we go through hard times. We grow by being around other Christians. Iron sharpens iron. We grow by learning verses in the Bible, principles in the Bible, truths in the Bible that we can apply to our lives. That's why I think so. all preaching and all teaching, I don't care how academic the teacher is, it must be heavy, heavy, heavy on life application because without life application, you're just giving out, you know, facts and truths. And there's merit in that if it's from the Bible, but the life application is the main part. That's how we grow when we work these principles and truths into our lives. And so that's very important. And then to reach out to others, to reach out to the people in our community who don't know the Lord. Now, when you came in, and if you didn't get it when you come in, I wish you would get it on the way out. We have little cards here called Reach Out. And it has a hand, five fingers, and then it has something under that that says, My Five Friends. And what we're asking everybody to do, I'm going to do this. I haven't done this yet, but I'm going to do this this week to take a few minutes this week when you're home, turn the television off, get a pen, sit in a quiet place, and think. You know, one of the things that is missing from most of our lives is thinking time, just thinking time. I know a pastor, he he pastored in Memphis, Tennessee for years and had had an incredible church and a great ministry, but about halfway through his ministry there, a man in the church who had been a successful businessman retired And he came to that pastor. He said, Pastor, I don't know how I can help you, but I want to help you any way I can. I want to take any burdens or pressures off of you so that you can have some time to think. That you can just sit in a chair and think. Not just read or pray or prepare sermons or visit, but to think. 
And that pastor said that thinking time was critical in his life and in his ministry. So we have to have time to think. Like you hear a sermon like this today. You get home later today. I mean, I hope we spend some time reflecting on what we've thought about. Okay, the vision to reach all these people for the Lord. The mission statement to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. The, the, how do we do that? By fulfilling the purposes. Lift up Jesus. So you have to think. In your life every day, are you lifting up Jesus? Are you being built up as a believer in your faith? And here, are you reaching out to others? And begin to think about people you go to school with. Begin to think about people you work with. People who live on, uh, in your neighborhood. Family members who either don't know the Lord or they don't go to church. Or both. And just write those names down on this piece of paper. And then I want us to figure out some Sunday how we can have a prayer time in the service. We could just put all these people's names before the Lord. But after you do that, then to begin every day to pray for those people. Put this on your refrigerator, on the mirror in your bathroom. Put it in your Bible. Put it somewhere that's prominent. And when you see it every day, God, I pray for Billy. God, I God, I pray for Susie. God, I pray just whatever their names are. I just pray for them. And then as you pray for those people, here's the next thing I would encourage all of us to do. Don't just invite them to church mechanically or artificially, but be their friend. Get to know them. Develop a relationship with them. Learn about their family and, and just be their friend in natural, normal ways. And then as the Spirit of God gives you opportunity and you sense Him leading you, invite them to church. Say, hey, come to, you think you could ever come to church with with us uh, some Sunday and sit with us and we'd just love to have you. Not everybody will come, but maybe on the five, maybe one or two will. Maybe all of them will. Who knows? But I think it would be a great thing. Now, as we, are y'all still with me? By the way, say amen if you're still with me. As we think about this emphasis, trying to reach our community for Christ, here's the question. Why, why is this important? Why am I not up here today preaching a sermon on some other topic? Why, why are we going to take five weeks in the fall just to further develop what I've talked about today? Why? I was up late last night. That question was on my mind when I went to bed. God, why is this important? I mean, I know why, but I wanted to be able to articulate why it's important. I was up till nearly two in the morning last night trying to figure this, how I could say this. Why is this a big deal? And about two or two, a little after two, I came up with this. Here's why this is a big deal. Because all these people in our community who don't know the Lord. Now, we don't know how many are saved or how many are, but all those people who don't know the Lord, think about this. When they die, they won't go to heaven. And I don't know any simpler way to say that. The only people at the end of the journey who are going to heaven are people who have been made right with God. That's the only people who are going to heaven. Now, you don't need to look at this, but let me just read a verse. This is a very interesting verse. In, in fact, I'll just quote it. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. That means I'm not righteous, you're not righteous, the Pope's not righteous, Billy Graham wasn't righteous, there is none righteous. Mother Teresa wasn't righteous, not by herself. There, the scriptures, unless the Bible's wrong, and nobody here today thinks the Bible's wrong, 
And the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, as you mull that over in your mind, listen to something Jesus said in Matthew 25 in verse 46. He said, and these, talking about unsaved people, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, think about what Jesus said. Jesus said at the end of the day, the unrighteous are going to everlasting punishment, but the righteous are going to eternal life. Now, here's the conflict. Here's, where, here's the rub here. The righteous are going to eternal life, but the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So what does this mean? Does this mean that nobody's going to heaven? No. It means that we need God's help to make us righteous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21, it says, For God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. At the moment of salvation, when you got saved, here's what happened. God forgave your sins. God washed your sins away. God removed your sins. And in that same moment, he covered you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So the only way that we go to heaven is by being righteous. And yet we've got a problem because the Bible says no one is righteous. So the only way we can become righteous is if God makes us righteous. When we give Jesus our sins, he gives us his righteousness. And so, why is this important? Why is this a big deal? It's not so we can be successful. It's not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look how many people are here. Because remember, success is not measured by numbers. Success is measured by being obedient to God. It's important that we get the message out so that people can be made right with God, they can become righteous in Christ, so that when they die, they can go to heaven with all of us who have been made right with God. It is as though, and not, I mean, this is literally what happened. We owed God a debt that we could not pay. Jesus Christ came to earth and he paid the debt for us. And he forgives our sins and he gives us his righteousness. I was, again, last night, I'm, I'm, I'm lying there in bed. It's late. It's early in the morning. I'm like, I've got to go to sleep so I can be ready to preach in the morning. And, uh, and I'm thinking, God, what would be a good illustration of you paying off the debt and making us right in your eyes? Some, some earthly illustration of that. And I thought of one, and I've shared part of this before, so I won't share that part now, but back in 2007, God, in a, in a miraculous way, provided a car for me. I'd been driving a, a Chevy pickup truck, 1997 Chevy Cheyenne, stepside, dark green. Love that truck. I would pay good money if I could ever find it. If any of you are driving that truck, let's talk after the service. I'd like to buy that truck back. And I needed to sell that truck, and so I put it on a, one of my friends. He has a car lot, and I put it on his lot. And I, I said to him, if you can get 5000 on this for this truck, you'll be, you'll be doing real well. He called me a few days later. He said, John, did better than that. He said, uh, we got $6,300 for your truck. I said, man, that is fantastic. So he got me the check for the 6300 I got him the title to the truck. The people bought it. Deal done. And I'm thinking, well, you know, God did me a 
great favor on the new car that, I'm, that I have now. And so I don't need to be selfish. I've got $6,300, and, and uh, I, need to, I need to give that money away. And I, at first I thought, well, you know, what I really need to do is replace the floor in my kitchen. That's what I really thought. And I thought that money would do it. But I thought, no, you know, I need to, I need to be generous. So I wrote a check for half of that, $3,150, and I gave it to my parents. And I wrote another check for $3,150, and I gave it to my brother. Because, you know, family, we're supposed to take care of family. And I, when I gave it to both, both of those groups of my family, I said, look, this is, this is a check for $3,150. I said, y'all been good to me, and this is not much. You can't retire on this. You can't go to Hawaii on this. You can't buy a house or a car on this. But I just, in my heart, I just felt led to, to give this to you. And they, they both received it, and they were very grateful. Well, a few weeks went by, and I was home one Thursday night. It was one of those nights I, wa- I was not in the gym. I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't studying. I was just watching TV. And my phone rang, and it was my brother. He said, hey, man, I hope I didn't get you at a bad time. We always say that when we first call each other. I hope I didn't get you at a bad time. And I said, no, no, not at all. I'm just sitting here watching TV tonight. He said, well, he said, yeah, I've been thinking about this, this gift you gave me, $3,150. And he said, I really, uh, I really appreciate that, and, and that means a lot to me. I said, well, you know. I just wanted to do something for you. You've always been good to me. And he said, you know, you felt like God told you to do that, right? I said, I, I really did feel that way. And he said, well, you know, I, uh, I have a question for you. He said, how much money do you owe on your house? Well, at that time, I'd been living in my house about four, four and a half years. And my house, when I bought it, was $135,000. And I paid down 20%, so I paid down 27000 And I financed 108000 and my monthly mortgage was $826.19. And I financed that for 30 years. But I, when I did that, I just said to myself, man, I don't want to be paying a mortgage for 30 years. And so I got a little piece of paper, and I, I came up with a deal that if I would pay $173 extra a month, couldn't do it every month, but some months I could, then some months I might could pay $273. I had it all figured out. If I would pay extra, I could get it whittled down and... And so uh, that's what I was in the process of doing. He said, how much do you owe on that house now? And I was explaining all this to him. I said, well, I don't have the exact number, you know, in my mind. I said, but it's in the neighborhood of $50,000. He said, $50,000. He said, that's kind of about, I thought it might be in that neighborhood. He said, uh, he said you know, uh, you told me that you felt like God had led you to give me $3,150, and I appreciate that. He said, I'm not 100% sure but I think God is leading me to pay off your house. I said, oh, that is God's voice. You are you. <laughs> I'm sure you have heard from the Lord. He, do, he doesn't know I'm telling this story. He wish I wasn't telling this story. He said, well, I'm not so sure. I said, Joel, th- you got to go with a word from God. You got to be obedient to the Lord. No doubting, no doubting. Instant obedience. We talking, kidding around. I, and then I said, seriously, man, I appreciate that. You're my brother. i give you anything. You'd give me anything. We know we love each other. You don't have to give me $50,000. I said, I've got a plan to pay it off. He said, yes, I know you do, John. And he said, you're so bad wanting to pay that house off. At the rate you're going, you won't buy a new pair of jeans for five more years because you're so tight. He said, I tell you what I do. I just, I just really feel in my heart that God, is, that God is telling me to pay that off. He said, so... Uh, Here's the deal. He said, when you get your next few, he said, it'll take me a little bit to get the money to you. And so, and he said, but from now on, don't be paying any extra. 
just, just, just go out to eat or do something different. Don't pay extra on your house. And just know that uh, your house is paid off. $50,000 is yours. You know, when I thought about that early this morning, I was thinking about my brother. I had a debt. Now, I had a debt that by the grace of God, I could pay. I mean, as long as God kept me alive and working, I, I could pay the debt off. I had a debt I could pay. But my brother came along and said, yeah, you've got a debt you could pay, but it's going to take too long. Let me pay the debt for you. I thought about Jesus, our elder brother. Jesus looked down from heaven and Jesus said, you people have a debt that you can't pay. You can't come up with a payment plan to pay that debt. And so I'm going to come to this earth and live a sinless life, perfectly righteous. I'm going to die on that cross to shed my blood to pay for your sins so that one day you can give me your sins and I will give you my righteousness and I will make you right with God. You can be righteous so that one day when you die, you can come to heaven and you can be with me forever. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. He paid a debt. He didn't know, but he's made it possible for us to be right with God if we will place our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the message that we have for our community, that the debt's been paid. You don't have to live guilty. You don't have to live afraid. You don't have to live with shame. You don't have to live with regret. You don't have to live worried. You don't have to live wondering what's going to happen to you when you die. You can know beyond the shadow of any doubt that when you die, you're going to heaven because I've made you right with God by my righteousness. Late last night, one of the reasons I couldn't sleep, I pulled up a preacher, a man named Tim Delina. If you're ever in New York City, you ought to go to Times Square Church. Tim Delina is the pastor of that church, and he was preaching a powerful sermon. He was talking at the end of his sermon about what I'm talking about now, about how only the righteous can go to heaven. But in order to be righteous, we have to be made righteous by Jesus Christ. And he told a story about Warren Buffett that I had never heard. Warren Buffett, of course, is the second wealthiest man in the world. He's worth, I think, $44 billion dollars. And Warren Buffett said recently, according to Tim Delina, that when he dies, he's not giving all that money to his kids. He's leaving 85% of his wealth to four charities. Now, we need to pray for his children. They'll only have a few billion dollars to make it through life. He's not giving all of it to them. He's leaving 85%. And according to what Tim Delina, I had not heard or read this statement by Buffett, but I trust Tim Delina. He said, Warren Buffett said this. There are many ways to get to heaven, but giving large amounts of money away is the best way I've found. Now, with all due respect to Warren Buffett, who is one of the greatest financial minds in the history of the world, and I honor him for that, but if he indeed said what Tim Delina said he said, 
we can say this, while his financial advice may be impeccable, his spiritual and biblical advice is not to be trusted. There are not many ways to God. There are not different roads to heaven. There is one way to heaven, there is one way to God, and that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And our message for the community is simply this, Jesus has changed me. And he can change you. And when we share that message, if we're witnesses, not responsible for the results, but faithful witnesses, not only will we be successful, whatever happens, our message will have a power, a dunamis, a dynamite to it, because it is the message of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. Amen? Father, we believe, as far as we can discern you're leading, that your vision for our church, because you haven't changed, our vision changes, your vision never changes. You told them to start in Jerusalem, then to go to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Start where you are and go from there. God, you're telling us to start in a five-mile radius of our church. I pray for the 130,000 people in the five-mile radius of our church today who are not at this church and they're not at any church. Many of them are not saved. I pray your spirit would convict them of their need for Christ. Lord, we pray for a fresh moving of your spirit. We pray for revival in our area. And God, I pray that it would begin in me. And I pray that it would begin in us. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I had a friend call me last week. He texted me and he said, John, I need to talk. We talked. And he said, John, I was in a conversation recently, and someone close to me said to me, how sure are you that you're saved? And I said to that person, I'm 98 to 99% sure. And he said, John, there was something about hearing that number come out of my mouth that scared me. And he said, I'm meeting with you today because I need you to help me to get 100% sure. And we did, and he did. And after we prayed that prayer, I could tell on his face, the burden of that weight had lifted as he had shifted from being almost sure to being totally sure. Now, we're talking about reaching our community for Christ, but we have to begin where we are. I have to begin where I am, and I'm here now, and you're here now. And I'm asking you an honest question, man to man, man to woman, man to student. I'm asking you this question. Are you 100% sure that you're saved? Or are you somewhere less than that? Because if you're less than that, I want to help you to move into that 100% zone. Next week, we're going to come back and build on this sermon. And I'm going to say, one of the things we have to have in order to be an effective witness, we have to have security in our relationship with Jesus. If you don't know that you're saved, you're not going to be a very effective witness. What are you going to say to the unsaved? Hey, come follow me. I have no idea where I'm going. No. You need to know where you're going. You need to know you're going to heaven because you've been made right by the blood of Jesus. And if you're not sure that's happened in your case, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. There it is. That settles it right there. I trust you, Jesus. Lord, by faith I receive the garments of salvation. By faith I receive the robe of righteousness. 
And God, I thank you that now I, I am right with you through Jesus. And one day I will go to heaven.